And yes, indeed, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back for yet another week of, well, I don't know what we call this week because this is one really incredible week of guests. Um, Again, welcome. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my movie reviews and interviews in print and online, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. 24-7 around the, in the U.S. and abroad, but every Monday, you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And as I just alluded to, we have one of, I think, what may prove to be one of the best shows ever, certainly one of the most exciting guests ever. We're going to be talking today about a new documentary that is coming out. It's part of the Fathom Events series. Many of you, uh, a lot of the classic film fans, are well familiar with the Fathom Events series and their partnership with TCM and, you know, bringing the beautiful classic movies back to the big screen for one night only. Well, Fathom is now doing another one night only for all you music fans out there with Hired Gun, Out of the Shadows, Into the Spotlight, about all those unsung heroes the hired guns, the drummers, the guitarists of rock music. We have today the director of Hired Gun, Fran Strine, is with us. And at the midway point in the show, I know, let the screaming commence. Phil X, lead guitarist for Bon Jovi, will be calling in live. So, sit back, relax, and we're going to talk a whole lot of music today. But, you know, first, I've got to talk about um, Hired Gun in general. Okay, what is Brian doing in there? Brian is not paying attention. That was, I'm, I'm on the Twitterverse. It, it, that, that is called, in The Wizard of Oz, Ignore the Man Behind the Glass. Yeah, please do. I, I'd rather be unknown. Uh, no, your mistakes will be brought to, to the forefront. You cannot hide. How you doing? <laughs> Be glad there's a glass wall separating us right now. Sweet. Okay, so I mean, I'm excited for today's show. I know. I know you are. I, I am. I in the documentary that you're talking about. I I love all of those like un, unsung heroes of, mm-hmm. of music that you things that you know tracks that you've heard over the years. And then we got Phil X calling in. Like, yeah, and you know, and what's really fascinating about the doc is, um, Jason Hook is one of the producers on it. He is also uh, very prominently featured in interviews. Um, Jason has played with uh, everyone from Mandy Moore and Hilary Duff to Alice Cooper, and now he heads up Five Finger Death Punch, uh, vocals and guitarist. Uh, but the way that Fran has con- has constructed this documentary, it, I can't recommend it highly enough. We learned so much about the individual stories of some of the true legends whose guitar licks you know, whose drum riffs you know, but whose, and faces you may know, but names you don't. 
some of the some just some of the talent that is in this documentary. Liberty DeVito, Billy Joel's drummer for 30 years. He also played with Carly Simon, Phoebe Snow, Karen Carpenter, Stevie Nicks, Rick Wakeman, Bob James, and Meatloaf. Ray Parker Jr. Fascinating segment with Ray Parker Jr. talking about the Ghostbusters. And Ray Parker Jr. started as a studio musician, as a session guy, uh, and then went on to play with the likes of Tina Turner, Diana Ross, Herbie Hancock, also the Carpenters, Rufus and Chaka Khan, Bill Withers, Boz Skaggs, David Foster, Rudy Sarzo. One of the most fascinating stories that you'll hear and see in the documentary uh, with Ozzy Osbourne, Quiet Riot, and Whitesnake. Jason Newstead. He was with Metallica and then with Ozzy Osbourne. Glenn Sobel. Played with Alice Cooper, Motley Crue, Hollywood Vampires, which also has Alice Cooper, Johnny Depp, and a few other people in it. And Richie Sambora, Ava, Gard- Ava Gardner. An amazing, amazing bassist. Plays with Pink, uh, Cher, Moby. Of course, Phil X, who is currently, yeah, he is the lead guitarist for Bon Jovi now. He previously played with Tommy Lee. He's played with Avril Lavigne, Kelly Clarkson. Alice Cooper and Rob Zombie. There's something about going from Kelly Clarkson to Bon Jovi that I find, and Rob Zombie that I find really an interesting trajectory. And we've got Jay Graydon, uh, who is known for his work with Steely Dan, Barbara Streisand, Dolly Parton, Diana Ross. Uh, yeah, it's just, it goes on and on. Absolutely. I mean, talent like you haven't seen in one place before. And, of course, one of my favorites, Nita Strauss, who is uh, currently a guitarist with Alice Cooper. Um, You will find absolutely insightful. It's fun. It's entertaining. And we've actually got some jam sessions going on with songs written just for these hired guns uh, by the Crystal Method. And we actually get to see all of them come together and play together. But uh, when Fran calls in, we're going to we're going to get in, go in deep on this and talk about this amazing, amazing documentary. Um, But before he calls in in a few minutes, um, Brian, just curious, because, you know, you love music. I do. You do. Now, were you familiar with any of these artists that I just rattled off? Yeah. As you were saying them, you said Hollywood vampires. And I was like, oh, Johnny Depp. And yeah. then I was like, oh, Giant Depp's played with Conan. Oh, Conan's played with, like, Tenacious D, who's played with Jack. Yeah, Conan. and Glenn Sobel is the connection there between Alice and Johnny and, and Richie Sambora and that whole group. Yeah, yeah. I've been, actually, you know, what's funny is me and my friends have been doing a really deep dive on Rob Zombie music lately. Oh, really? And it's not a genre that I necessarily liked as a kid, but for some reason, Rob Zombie is starting to kind of grow on me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just, it, it's funny when you, when I think back about the things that used to, really irritate me as a, as a kid or as a teenager growing up, and now it's like things that I really enjoy listening to. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. I wish I could tell my 15-year-old self, like, you're going to sit down, you're going to love a soundtrack to a movie called La La Land, and you're going to listen to it every day. And it's going to be music that you never thought that, you you know, it was always like that, oh, we're going to put this on because we're stuck in traffic music. No, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's a gorgeous soundtrack. But I'm excited. You know, like Bon Jovi, there's something about Bon Jovi when, when that comes on. Uh, you know, on, on the classic rock radio that you're, you're you know, I, don't, I can't turn the dial. Well, yeah, Jovi. I mean, that's my ringtone for everyone I don't know. What is it? It's my life, Bon Jovi. Really? 
Yeah, oh, that that is my ringtone on my phone for anybody that calls that I do not know. I have designated songs as ringtones. So which ones for people that you do know? It depends who you are. If it's anyone in my family, it's uh, the Wizard of Oz, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. So you actually have personalized. I thought I was the only person that did that. Oh, no. For my, my parents, I have the Imperial March uh-huh. for, from Star Wars. Um, for everybody else that I know, right now it's the Adam Family theme song. Mm-hmm. So it's the... You know, if it's people that I totally just do not want to speak to because they're a pain in the butt, you got Rick Springfield's I've done everything for you, you've done nothing for me. All right. Um oh yeah, I have I have a variety. That's perfect. You know, for certain special people, one special person, he always had his own ringtone. Um Paul McCartney, maybe I'm amazed. Maybe I'm okay. We can't get in trouble for for that little bit. No, um, no, it wasn't 16 bars, so, you know, so you're okay. Yeah, I remember we had to pay for ringtones back in the day. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Uh, you still do. I don't know any. I don't know who does. I, I make my own ringtones. I just take the song, and there, upload it on the phone. It's relatively simple now, not before where they used to lock the ringtones, and you had to purchase them through a store, mm-hmm. and that's the only way that you can use them. I remember that being the case. Remember when they had the, the advertisings on, on TV where... Like text, you know, zero zero zero, and then you text the code five two, and then you'd get like you could get a ringtone or access. Frog, yeah. yeah, no, but no, I have I have songs designated for the people that. that oh, for it. everything is designated with a song. So, and people think I am very strange for doing that. No, well, I don't because I one hundred percent agree with you. I I'd like to know who's calling me before I pick up the phone. I mean. If I'm a, I have my phone face down every single time in case I get a message, someone can't read it. I I flip it over. I I want to know just based on the song, not just me flipping it. I'm you know, lazy. and of course, you know, I have some vintage Elton John as ringtones. Um, with of course, one of the greatest bands ever. You know, with Davy Johnstone, D. Murray, Nigel Olson. I mean. Yes, there was a time in life where I actually read the liner notes of every single album and would know who all the studio musicians and band members were. You know, and again, th- this goes to that you and I are, are different here. I, I do the exact same thing even today, especially with uh, with rap albums. They have so many people working on mm-hmm. those albums and, and some of the instrumental music for artists that, that, that do like a good job in their craft, not just have like a keyboard guitar or like a keyboard because with the keyboard, you can you can play every instrument now. Like sure. a, a keyboard, you can set it to be a bass drum, and it'll be a bass drum. Yeah, but it's not the same it's thing. Not. You can it, hear it. It's like filmmakers saying, "Ah, yeah, we can make digital look like film." Yep. It's not the same it's not. thing. It's not. You you take the Hateful Eight and compare it to like a like a Transformers, and you notice the difference yeah. between the two. Yeah. Which one is is digital, and, and which, which one film. which one is film? Yeah, uh, but. Well, what I go with the piano? Oh, if they have studio musicians, and then you sometimes you see that oh, like there's a band called Bad Bad Not Good, and they're a jazz mm-hmm. instrumental band from Canada. They do a lot of rap stuff, and it's funny to see them do do all that. And, you know, staying on the topic of music here. Yes, we uh, are staying on the topic of music. I love it. Music is my passion. I love music. Next to radio, music is you my know. Passion. And of course, my master's thesis in in college was my master's thesis was on the Hollywood movie musical, which is beautiful which I, I as you were i was excited that excuse me that that the land oh was was bringing that back yeah i remember watching ryan Gosling do a little twirl yeah. out during a lovely night and i go i hope this reunites the big hollywood picture hey ryan Gosling just 
draws in so much Gene Kelly into his performance. Exactly. That's exactly what I felt yep. the exact same way. It was so Gene Kelly that that it was I almost had a little tear roll down my eye. I seriously almost had yeah. a little tear roll down no, my eye. No, when you when you look at Ryan Gosling dance in La La Land, he has the athleticism that Gene Kelly brought to dance as opposed to the long lines and elegance of a Fred Astaire. But yeah, I that's one reason I really that's what really made Ryan Gosling's performance stand out for me. And then when he sang, it was very similar to Gene Kelly's manner of, of singing uh with you know, more talk sing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a very low. That's how you get away when you don't know how to sing or yeah. don't aren't confident but, in singing. But, you know, you music. Well. Yeah, and that's one that one thing that's great about this documentary with the guests that we have today, Hired Guns. You know, we have had a great few music documentaries. Uh, that's a business line. Oh, pop up lately, you know, the past few years. I mean, we had 20 Feet from Stardom, went on to win an Oscar. And, I mean, that really brought to light the backup sing the singers, not just in the studio, but on the stage. Judith Hill, Lisa Fisher, Mary Clayton, Darlene Love. You know, a lot of people, until they saw 20 Feet from Stardom, they thought the only thing that Darlene Love was known for was being Mrs. Roger Murtaugh in the Lethal Weapon series. Uh, and then The Wrecking Crew. If you haven't seen The Wrecking Crew, I can't recommend it highly enough because it takes us back to the days of the 50s and 60s with some of the seminal studio musicians in history. Don Randy on keyboards, Carol Kay, guitarist. And I would say Nita Strauss is probably today's the equivalent of Carol Kay. Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco, Denny Tedesco. You know, if you if you want a real musical journey over the holiday weekend, you know, stream 20 Feet from Stardom, stream The Wrecking Crew, and on 29th, go see Hired Gun in the theater. And right now, it is my extreme pleasure and thrill to introduce Fran Strine. Welcome to the show, Fran. Hey, thank you for having me on. Ah, I am thrilled. This this is awesome. this is very exciting for me to have you on. I am I love music documentaries. I grew up on the set of American Bandstand back in Philadelphia at 46 and Market Street. Uh, oh, awesome. So music has always been a big, big part of my life, and I've known so many of the studio musicians and some of the stage mu- hired guns uh, over the right. years. So to see this documentary and what you have done to shine a light and put names to the faces and the guitar licks and the, and the drum riffs, it's it's fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, we worked really hard on this one. Oh, uh, looking at this, I can tell how hard you worked. Not only is this so polished from a filmmaking production standpoint, but with mm. but the content, Fran. How did you? And I know that you know Jason Hook is is also producer on this with you as you were directing and writing as well. How did you guys go about come up with the idea? Because as I was just mentioning, you know, we've we've the Wrecking Crew, an amazing documentary that really takes us back to the, to the studio musicians in the fifties and sixties, and of course, Twenty Feet from Stardom shines a light on the sing- the studio singers and the backup singers in performance. But you know, stepping now into the world of rock with guitarists and drummers. You you just knocked it out of the park here. 
So where? Thank you so much. Where did this idea come from? What what started you on this road? Well, look, you know, I've done several documentaries in the past, mainly for record labels. Like I'd go in the studio with a Stained or a Nickelback or somebody like that and, and document the recording of their album and put together essentially a 15-minute EPK package of the making of their album, right? Mm-hmm. And I, like you, I'm a huge documentary fan, especially of music, and I absolutely love The Wrecking Crew and 20 Feet from Stardom, and I've watched them several times over, you know. And I was on tour with Jason Hook as their videographer and photographer on the Five Finger Death Punch tour. It was a world tour, and we were in Singapore, I think, just in the back of the bus talking about, you know, movies we love, because Jason has a deep love for documentaries as well. And uh, I'm at an age now where I'm kind of done touring, and uh, recently moved to the Bay Area and fell in love with it, and I want to spend more time here. So I was like, you know what? I need to focus in on a new project that I'd like to do. And Jason's like, well, what do you want to do? Because maybe I'll be a part of it. And come to find out, Jason was a hired gun in the past. You know, he's a <laughs> permanent member of Five Finger, but he had toured with Alice Cooper and Hillary Duff and Vince Neil and all these other Let, uh, let's artists. Not, let's not forget like, Mandy. Cool concept. Let's not forget Mandy Moore. <laughs> Mandy Moore as well. Yeah, you know, so, uh, and. Uh, you know, I just thought that was a, a cool subject. Like, well, you know, he tried to pitch me on an idea of the decline of music sales, which, you know, is, is interesting. But, uh, you know, I love storytelling. I love to go to the movies, believe it or not. And I'm a big guy. I'm 6'2", you know, 230 pounds. But I love going to the movies and crying and <laughs> laughing and cheering. You know, so I wanted to make a, a, a film that would encompass all that and be compelling, you know. And, uh, you know, the first person we reached out to was uh, Liberty DeVito, who was Billy Joel's drummer. I'd heard his story from a mutual friend of mine. And I was like, well, that's the kind of story I want to tell. Something mm-hmm. with guts and glory and just pull the curtain back and, like, take it a step further than, like, you know, behind the music bit even. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we accomplished it, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Liberty's story is one, it's one of the anchors. You know, it's right. it's really one of the anchors, and you've got four primary anchors within the doc. You've got Liberty DeVito, you've got Jason, who's still on a high um, with right. with his current band. Um, Liberty, he's at the end of the road, and what he's doing now at this stage of his mm. career with Little Kids Rock in the schools, I think, is right. fabulous. Then we've got a different take from Rudy Sarzo, very philosophical, very pragmatic. On his yeah, approach. you know, with Rudy, yeah, it, it was interesting with Rudy. You know, he was brought in early to, to interview, and we went and interviewed him. I knew his story, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of he kind of glossed over the Randy Rhodes death scene. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he was ready to talk about it. And as we were developing some of these stories, I was like, people are going to fall in love with this guy because he's just such a, like you said, a pragmatic, happy, positive. Mm-hmm. Everything works in his favor because he's just such a nice guy. Yeah. But the thing that we glossed over was why he kept getting these gigs. Because had that tragedy never happened, he would probably still be playing with Ozzy, which would have been fine. But he would never got gotten his own band, or the Quiet Riot, or Leapfrog and the White Snake at their at their height. Mm-hmm. So I called him. I'm like, you know, look, I don't want to be, you know, crying too much, but 
I feel like we left a huge part of your story out of the out of the interview, which was the Randy Rhodes tragedy. You know, and I don't know if you were ready to talk about it. So I don't want to suppress you, but would you mind us coming back over, maybe talking about it? And I got to tell you, man, when we did, he went there. You can see it on his face oh. in the interview. It's the only thing we really talked about there. And I got to tell you, myself and our crew that were there filming were weeping like little babies in the corner after we were done, including Rudy. I mean, it was a really touching moment, and uh, I'm so, you know, I don't want to say proud of that moment, but the, the fact that he trusted us with that story and to put it together the way we did was uh, everything to me. Well, it really elevated that, that scene. You know, and out of that comes one of, I think, one of the key moments, key statements in the documentary when when Rudy actually says, because of that, because life can turn on a dime. Uh, one day you're here, yeah. one day you're not. You know, you have to, quote unquote, play like there's no tomorrow. When you right. pick, when you That's pick up, all these guys. Yeah. When you pick up that instrument, yeah. you've got to play like there's no tomorrow. And yeah. you see it in their faces. You hear it in their voices all through this documentary. But, you know, a very a, a linchpin here that really ties everything together is someone who is now, in my estimation, one of the elder statesmen of rock. And that's Alice Cooper. Right. I mean, how we, many guys have that guy gone through in his career? It's 125 musicians, I think. And they all leave with this blessing. Like, there's nobody can say a bad word about Alice no. Cooper. He either elevates them out of his band into a kiss or a five-finger, or a winger, or whoever, but they all leave on good terms. They have nothing but good things to say about the guy. And it was the only time I was starstruck. I've been doing this for 20 years. I, was, I grew up on Alice Cooper. Oh. I love it to death when 18 came out. I, that was it for me. You know, I was a little kid. And to finally meet him and interview him, uh, I was so nervous. And when he walked through the door of the hotel, my nerves went away. I mean, he was just so down to earth. You know, probably knew I was scared to death. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you put me at ease. You know, it, uh, it was such a thrill to talk to him. I don't think people realize, unless you know Alice's story, and his father ba- was a Baptist minister, and, you know, right. and I think a lot of those young teachings, that that's his core. He can get up on stage oh, yeah. and, and be as outrageous as he can, but the minute he gets off that stage, all those core elements of kindness and goodness um that come from those young those early teachings that's him that's that's who he is and you know like you said i mean i've been following alice since i was in junior high school back in the early 70s uh i i know the night of our junior prom he was playing at the spectrum in philadelphia and it was a big decision for several of us do we go to the prom or do we go to the alice cooper concert (laughs) uh But, and I've had the pleasure to meet him on several occasions over the years since then. But to listen to him talk about the industry, to talk about his philosophies about how all these hired guns should be treated and, you know, where the industry has gone, beyond insightful. And if young musicians would sit and listen to this man, they can learn so much about how to navigate. How to navigate the industry, right? You know how right. how did you narrow down? Because 
this is like the, a who's who of rock musicians. From Jason and Liberty, Alice, you got Ray Parker Jr., Rudy, Jason Newstead, um, Glenn Sobel, right. Eva Gardner, Nita Strauss, one of my faves, Nita Strauss. Um, I was amazing, saying, isn't she? I was saying before, she is like the equivalent of, of Carol Kay in the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, look, we interviewed 55 musicians, I think. Uh, I don't think we needed to. I think I knew I had in the bag who I, who I needed, but, uh, you know, it's never a bad thing to pick up content if you can, and we had the, the luxury of being able to do that. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I tried to edit the movie at first myself. I was going to take a stab <laughs> at it. And uh, <laughs> that's never a good thing for a director. I think I'm starting to learn this because this is my first real big uh, film. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, like I said, I've done other documentaries before, but none on this spectrum or level. And I knew I had an obligation to, you know, not only the musicians, but uh, to our investors, to whoever would pick this up as a distributor, and to myself to make the best movie that I could and leave ego outside of it. As I'm sitting there editing, it just started looking like white noise to me because I wanted to put everything in. Yeah. But as a filmmaker, I know you can't fall in love with 55 people and tell a, a good, compelling story. Mm-hmm. So I had to narrow it down to, to those those few key figures in the film. The Liberty, Rudy, Jason, maybe Phil X, uh, you know, we try to do a parallel theme with the earlier guys, with Jay Grade and Steve Lukather, David mm-hmm. Foster, Ray Parker. Those guys grew up together. And uh, I got to tell you, it was tough, man. But, uh, you know, our our main editor, Gavin Fisher, just did a fantastic job piecing the stuff together. Then we brought in Tim Calandrello, who then took Gavin's finished pieces and strung them together in a way that you see in the film now and mm. uh, i was so lucky to have both those guys at my disposal and uh, what was also important to me that a lot of people overlook is audio mm-hmm. if you're a filmmaker you know the video you know the the visual is very important but the audio is critical and uh there were a couple of interviews that we did where i had to run the audio and you can probably point them out in the film but uh thomas corkin was our our uh, audio guy and he just killed it and we mixed it at skywalker ranch to me <laughs> i wanted i wanted this yeah i know i wanted the film to sound as good as it looked it was very important to me and you know the music to me is kind of in the background i want to really be more of a storyteller but i know that the the audience would want to see and hear and hear these great songs that these guys did mm-hmm. and you know put a melody to the face well and and uh you know Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and you know, and that really stands out uh, in two segments. You know, your end titles at the one hour thirty two minute mark, uh, and your one hour twenty three mark, and I think maybe one other where you actually have all of these hired guns getting together and performing together, and it oh, yeah. is mind blowing, <laughs> and the sound is yeah. incredible. Thank you. Yeah, you know what? As a producer. You know, uh, that was the toughest challenge was getting all those guys together. And we, and we were fortunate. We got, I don't know if you want to call it luck or good fortune or what you want to call it, but, uh, you know, to get all these guys together in a room is very difficult because they're all currently working musicians. But uh, it happened to be right after the NAM show mm-hmm. in Anaheim, and I just happened to send out an email. I was like, would you guys happen to be available this weekend? And like 19 of them were. <laughs> so 
I was like, Where, where's the studio going to be? So I called up East West Studios, which is a world-renowned recording studio, and they're like, yeah, man, we'd love for you to come in here and shoot. So we did, and I was owed a favor by a, a producer, Johnny Kay, uh, who did a lot of the Three Doors Down records and Disturbed and uh, Stained. And we'd worked together in the past. I was like, remember that favor you owe me? Would you be able to fly in from Chicago that weekend? He's like, absolutely, man. I'll do whatever you need. I'm in. Count me in. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he's a, you know, Grammy-nominated producer. So just a plane ticket to get him there. And a lot of the cast has just been wonderful. Ray Parker Jr., you know, a lot of people need to know about this guy. I mean, Ghostbusters was the winning lottery ticket, as he calls it, for Mm -hmm. his career. But his backstory is so crazy like you know at 15 years old touring the world with the spinners mm-hmm. and playing with stevie wonder on the talking book record you know superstitious and all that stuff he played on and writing for shaka Khan and just so many cool stories and he's just a cool guy man he doesn't you know he doesn't need to do anything for me but he's gone to like south by southwest with me then we got a call to go to australia and the Ghostbusters 3, I guess, the latest one, was about to come out. So he was hot at the time because they're still using a song. Of course. I was like, would you have any interest? So, yeah, I was like, would you want to go to Australia with me to go to the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival? He's like, absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, you're kidding. You're going to be there for two weeks. He's like, let's go. I'm in, 100%. Wow. So we went. We just had the best time, and uh, he's been very supportive, as well as everybody else. Like, this week is just the press junket, mm-hmm. and uh, so many of the guys have just jumped on board and are really pushing the film. They're they're happy to be on it. Yeah, I know that you guys had something at the London Hotel, I think, uh, mm, yeah. the other yeah, night, yeah. and I couldn't make it. Uh, the publicist who's handling theatrical, CeCe reached out to me, and because I was tied up with L.A. Film Festival, I couldn't make it. But luckily, right. Tim, Tim Bender with... New Ocean Media, who handles all the radio stuff, Tim had hit me up over a month ago to get you on the show today. And oh, cool. To get you and Phil. Phil's gonna should be calling in shortly, too. Uh, Phil's awesome. And, yeah. well, you can stay on the line with Phil. Believe, I'd love to. Yes, of course. Yeah. But, He's no, great. Tim was so hot on this over a month ago. He booked you guys on the show. He goes, Deb, you're going to love it. You're going to love the doc. And I started oh. laughing when Cece then reached out to me. And I said, you know, you're late to the party. Tim already got hold of me first. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh-oh. And I, yeah, no, everybody's done. I, I see that Brian has connected a new caller here. Phil. Phil X. Yeah. Is that you? It is. Oh, my God. Phil, welcome to Behind the Lens. Your director, Fran, is also on the line. Get out. What's up, Phil? <laughs> What's happening, Fran? Oh, you know, man, it's an air in beautiful Northern California taking it all in. Nice. Yeah, you look good. <laughs> where, are you, where are you today, Phil? Because I know you've been on tour. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. And that's a good place to be today. It's only going to be, what, 90 degrees? It's been hot, man. I know. I know. Trust me. But I sit in my house and it's like all the fans are blowing on me. But <laughs> I have to say, Phil, I am so thrilled to have you on, on the show. A huge... Oh, I'm, a I'm, he- I'm glad to be here. 
a huge fan of your work in general, but your st- wow. your story that that you impart that comes out in Hired Guns is fascinating, and and your attitude is is one that I really like, and I'm so glad that Fran included you talking about it, how you came to Bon Jovi and how you approach and how you were approaching work. It's like you get hired for one one tour. That's it. If they call you back, they call you back. They called you back, right. and it, finally it wasn't until, I guess after this was pretty much in the can, you finally got, it was announced you were now the lead guitarist for Bon Jovi. Yeah, that's, um, it still freaks me out when I when I go to a show and I see my face on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, now what, what freaks you out more, seeing your face on a Bon Jovi t-shirt or seeing your face... On a T-shirt for your own group. Uh, you know what? It, well, see, it's such a different animal. Because when you're at a show and you see your face on on a Bon Jovi T-shirt, it takes you back to when you bought your own ticket to go see them on a New Jersey tour in Toronto, Canada, when I was a kid. So that's so surreal. It's it's unexplainable in, in most cases. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know when I go somewhere and I see my my band T-shirt on somebody and it's like it's because we're we're more of an underground entity so it's seeing that is even more kind of wow that's cool. <laughs> so how did you how did Jason convince you to get involved uh, with Hired Gun? It didn't take a lot of convincing. <laughs> <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was like, hey, you want to do this? Sure. When? Name the time and place. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's funny. When you, when you hear something like that going down, you're always suspect until until you get a call from the director. And then, and then you're finally behind, well, in front of the camera doing the interview. And then you're like, oh, this is a real deal. And they got a sound guy and a light guy. <laughs> and this is... For real. And then the conversation that I had with Fran was like one of the most, it wasn't even really an interview. I felt like, you know, we could have been drinking coffee at a coffee bean or something. And it just, it it came off to me like very professional, but also very personal. And it's exactly what, what I, you know, what I would want to expect as an artist, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, is that your typical style, Fran? When you're doing when you're you know doing interviews, yeah, you know my my yeah my background is of a concert touring photographer, videographer, and being in a studio environment as well. Like I've done probably thirty making of DVDs with various artists, so you know, I know the studio etiquette, when to speak up, when not to, just to be a fly on the wall. But you know, when I'm conducting these interviews. I know most of these artists because I've worked for them for years, so it is a conversation. And I feel like you get more out of that than staring at a sheet of paper and just asking the same question they've probably heard a thousand times. So I definitely try to keep it relaxed and, uh, and natural like that. Well, I'm really... I'm waiting to see the movie of Fran's face <laughs> during the interview. Because <laughs> he literally responds like you're having a conversation. Like you say something that might be a little bit like... You know, a, you know, kind of like get you on your toes, and he's got that face, like what? No way! That's crazy. <laughs> and you're like, that's the that's the movie I'm waiting for. 
Uh oh. Uh oh. When, you, when you're sitting there telling me you're playing with like Stuart Copeland, all the stuff I didn't even know that I couldn't even research and find, it was like, wow, that's that's pretty big, man. That's huge. You know, yeah, that was, uh, and all know, these other cool things. And you know what's funny? As an amazing experience that as that was, that's the one I always forget. It's like, man, I did five shows in Italy with Stuart Copeland. How do you forget that? Oh, my God. But, I know. Yeah. Well, you know, and so, yeah. something that I'm disappointed that did not come up in, in your interview segments within Hired Gun is you didn't talk about your dad and playing on the bazooki. Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of a touchy issue with me. Um, it's, it's, uh, sometimes it gets brought up, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't, and I won't bring it up. I mean, I love, the whole thing with the bazooki and my dad was, um, even when I was young, uh, the, the moments of being a child and seeing your dad walk into a party with a bazooki and start playing, I, the music was secondary. Mm-hmm. It it was what he did to that room. Like, he knew, like, 500 old political songs from the 40s. And he could make people laugh and he could make people cry. And I was astounded by the entertainment factor. Mm-hmm. And... And hearing a melody, like I could not, I didn't even know what he was singing lyrically, but I would hear a melody and the melody made me sad. Wow. Or the melody would make me happy. And that was my introduction to, you know, this is a minor thing, so that makes you sad. And this is a major thing that makes you happy. That was the whole, as a child, just growing up with that, it was, it was an incredible thing to segue into picking up the guitar and playing. Mm-hmm. Now, did you learn to play on the bazooki at all? Because that's just pretty much all picking, is it not? The picking is insane. Like when I was when I was eleven, my dad wanted me to take bazooki lessons, so I didn't really enjoy it because your, you know, your your dad wants you to do it. <laughs> um, it was like hockey too. I sucked at hockey, but my dad wanted me to play hockey. <laughs> I was like, come on! But when I was seventeen, and thinking I need something. As a guitar player, I need something that, that will take me to another level. And then I, I chose to take um, bazooki lessons on my own initiative, and that's when, because I wanted to do it and because I, I tacked it like this is going to take me to another domain as a player, and it did. My It took my picking to this crazy, articulate, um, punctuated unheard of kind of picking that at the time guys were like what the heck happened i'm like i took bazooki lessons (laughs) (laughs) so it's one it's one of those things where where um you know everybody's in high school everybody's at different high schools and you have peers and it launched me way above my peers when i started taking bazooki lessons everybody was like what the heck did this guy just do well i'm curious do you think because you have been described by more than one uh, one music critic out there as a bare-bones player. You know, you're not stuck to a pedal like so many uh, guitarists are, I think. Probably the one that comes to mind that you always see with a, almost always see with a pedal is the edge. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm curious, do you think that, all, that those picking skills are what allow you to be bare-bones and be off a pedal and actually be embracing the stage and embracing the instrument? First of all, I just got to say that I'm completely blown away that you brought up the use of pedals. 
And uh, and secondly, uh, to answer your question, um, I don't know if it's so much the picking thing. I mean, it's a it's a it's a bunch of things. Like I love the idea of getting everything I can out of the instrument without the help of effects. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is the picking, and sometimes it's like whip, you know, pulling the strings off the neck over each other, and sometimes it's pushing the uh, the, the lower strings from behind the nut, pushing them down to get different pitches and stuff like that, or using a tuning peg instead of a whammy bar. Stuff like I think it's it's a number of things that develop over years of. It's not stuff that you practice. It's just stuff that you do on stage, and you're inspired by a moment to, okay, what can I do right now? What would make this moment over the top? And mm-hmm. sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. So that's why at, at, when, you know, when, you're, when you've been doing it for 30 years, you kind of get that, oh, well, that, that worked and again and again and again. So you, you keep that in your toolbox. Well, you know, something that I noticed, it was a common thread, uh, Fran, amongst a lot of the interview subjects, a lot of our hired guns, was people that have gone on to have their own bands or had their own bands. But it's the dynamic uh, that happens within a group. And I think, Phil, you're, you're a perfect example of this. The difference in the dynamic between you when you play with Bon Jovi as a supporting player and you when you play with the drills as a front man. And I think both of, both of you really brought that out beautifully within the documentary, and it is something oh, that's very noticeable. Thank you. Right. Well, you know what? The, the hang is what they call it is almost as uh, important as your skill level of playing. That includes even like crew guys, you know, the guitar tech and everybody else, because you're touring for so long that any bad egg is just, uh, you know, just sours the whole deal. And uh, well, you, you know, know a lot of these guys did have to do their own thing, like relationships. You know, Steve Lukather so from Toto, right? Yeah, totally. Like relationships are so important. Like when you walk into a situation, like you're filling in for a, a you know, the guy in a band. You you want to make you want to be best friends with the crew. You know, you want to you don't want to walk in and have everybody hate you. And I've never been in a situation, I think, where that happened, but I've seen it happen. So you learn from other people's mistakes. Um, I walked in, and it was funny, because Takumi at the time, he was the tech. He's such an amazing, like, this guy is so good that if he's not working, he doesn't want to be working. But he was, he became, like, we're, we're still bros, we're still buddies, and we communicate. And it was one of those things when I stepped in, and I remember um, people kept telling him, hey, wish Phil luck tonight. And he would just be like, I keep telling you, he doesn't need it. He's got it down, you know, that kind of thing. So to have someone like that in your corner always and um, and supportive and telling you, hey, that was really great what you did there and maybe not so much on that one. And, you know, it's, 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 a nice, it's nice to have a guide like that. But... You know, it's, it's stepping in with the band, and you, and then you're on the jet with the band, and then you're not. You're in a hotel, and then there's fans in the lobby. And I've always just been, and I got this from my dad as well. He was always the same person to whoever he met. Mm-hmm. Now, do you like doing meet and greets with fans, Phil? Um, I do. I, uh, I, I think. Uh, 
and it's and, and again, I, this goes to back back to being uh, green on the streets of L.A. and you know my band playing in front of the Viper Room and standing outside and talking to people in the line. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I think people, you know, they ask good questions, and it, it makes you connect on another level. And then when they, you know, hey, what, did, what were you thinking when you wrote that song? Like stuff like that comes up, and then you're like, well. You know, what did you think when I said that? Because I always think writing lyrics is is interpretive. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't like to make everything black and white. I like to, I like it to sit, maybe provoke a thought, or or something like, you know, give you an image. And sometimes it it presents something to somebody, to each listener in a different way. And I love that. And how how are you going to find that out unless you talk to these people? Well, and something that you also do, Phil, is you've got your your website, philx.tv. Guitar lessons. not very happening right now. Well, you've been a little busy. You've been a little busy. I've, I've been a little busy. But, you know, I you know on there, it's like people, your performance videos, merchandise, you know, guitar lessons with Phil via Skype. Come on, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's been cool. a while since I did that. Yeah. But still. Well, the other thing is too is you know you when you get into a certain, a certain situation, and people are like, hey, you know, we're, we're doing a fundraiser for, um, you know, for this or that or cancer or or St. Jude's Hospital, and I I like I lo- I've been in situations where I could donate a guitar, or you know, and then you run out of guitars to donate, and it's like, well, hey, can we donate? Can I donate a lesson? Mm-hmm. And then. Before you know it, people are paying. I think the, there was a situation where it was a combo. I I donated a lesson, and and six oh six studio, which is Foo Fighter Studio, up in Northridge, they donated the studio. So it was a Phil X lesson at, at Foo Fighter Studio, and I believe the highest bid was like eight thousand dollars or something. Wow. Now, now, Fran, so are you... when something like that goes down, how can you, how can you, I, I, it's hard to be okay with, you know, selling one for a hundred bucks on, yeah. on Skype. Well, you know, and Fran, this should be giving you an idea of how you can finance, you know, a future, a future music documentary. Right. Right. You know. So, 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 so Phil X, you want to uh, do a Kickstarter and get this next project rolling or what? <laughs> Right, like, how many guitar lessons are you gonna give me? <laughs> <laughs> you get them for free, buddy. Well, no, sell them to the highest bidder to raise money to, for the project. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, right? yeah, and Phil, you've done something that a lot of of I don't think a lot of hired guns or even other musicians have done, but you actually entered into endorsement deals to expand your name. Well, I, I do think a lot of people do that. I I do, um, you know. Even early on, I was I was, uh, you know, people come up to you and they go, "Hey, we want to give you guitars mm-hmm. because we love what you do and we'd love you to represent us." And I mean, for me, I I felt like I always felt like, yeah, but you know, I really gotta like the guitar and I really gotta do this. And then when I finally got together with Framus, um, they were like, "Hey." What do you want? You know, I want the guitar in my dreams. I want the neck to be like this. I want the body to be like that. I like this weight. 
there's a guy that I make pickups with in in North Hollywood, and I just wanted to be, you know, an, an instrument that I could be very proud of and stand behind, and and that's and that's what happened. It w- it became an amazing thing, and and it's it comes down to this: you have your dream guitar. I have my dream amp with Friedman amplification. Um, I have a like if somebody walks up to me and says, um, you know, you your sound is incredible. I'd be like, well, dude, the guitar was made for me. The amp was made for me. If my sound wasn't incredible, I'd be an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so I have to ask you, during the one one session number within the documentary, uh, just what the doctor ordered, were you playing your Framus and using your Friedman? Yes. What a silly question. Of course you were. (laughs) Of course I was. And you know what? And it's not like, oh, I'm going to be in a documentary. Documentary. It's going to be visual. Um, I have to use this. It's like this is the guitar of choice. This is the amp of choice. Mm-hmm. And the and the odd, the funny thing is, is think of the the time where the the documentary started, and then the document the the part where the all the the cast members were jamming at East West Studios. I had switched guitar companies. When I did the interview, I was with Yamaha, mm-hmm. and we actually right. did we actually did the interview at Yamaha in Burbank. Wow! So I and somewhere along the lines, wow. you know, I didn't have a falling out. I'm still close with the the guys at Yamaha, but I was presented with a better opportunity with Framus. So, and and then so that happened <laughs> during the, the the entire making of. So how how long was this making of Fran? You know, the interview process was about a year and a half, almost two years, because like I said, a lot of these guys are working musicians still, whether it be in the studio or touring. So we had to work around their schedule, and I wanted to compile as, as much uh, interview footage as I could get to make it, you know, I don't want there to be one lagging second in the entire film. So I felt it was important to grab what I could. There were certain people I really wanted to get that we just didn't have time to get because mm-hmm. at some point you really got to get, you know, to the editing uh, portion of the film. But I'd say right now, Phil, what is it, about three years in? Oh yeah. Yeah, it took about nine. Yeah, it took a couple weeks to mix it over at Skywalker, and then uh, and we literally had had we been late one day mixing, we would not have been able to do our world premiere at South by Southwest. It was that close. Wow, that that's really cutting oh, it yeah. close. That was really tight. But the other thing too about that being a part of this is the friendships that have been created. Like obviously, oh, I know Jason. Man. I know a bunch of the guys I've recorded with them. But then you meet a monster like Liberty DeVito, and, and now now his phone, his number is in your phone and your friends, and you text occasionally. It's like, hey, I'm going to be in New York in August. Let's grab a pizza. You know, it's I- it's a it's such an incredible thing just to be uh, involved. Now, I know Fran felt like a kid in a candy store with all of you and putting and doing this doc. Did you feel like a kid in a candy yeah, he store? Yeah, seriously had the hardest job. How do you how do you omit some of the footage that you got because you want to keep oh. it under a certain timeline? Which is smart, but that's got to be the hardest job on the planet. So, I want to have Yeah, there's there's stuff living in those hard drives that uh I mean, my God, we could make, I tell you what, we could make 
three hired gun movies equally as good as the one that is currently out there right now. Okay, so what's what's stopping you? I'll watch them. Trust me, I'll buy them. I'll watch uh, them. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, it's very, very expensive to make a movie like this. You, you know, the one thing that I didn't really think about was like, you know, when I'm working for a record label, they give me the songs. I don't have to worry about licensing anything. All I got to do is show up, interview the guys, the promotions department at the record label sends me all the elements and materials I need. I don't worry about archival footage or anything. Mm-hmm. So when I'm starting to learn about all this, I'm like, oh, you mean you have to license all these songs? And there's two parts of it. There's a publishing part and a master. And they want how much money? You know, so I was just like, oh, my God, I'll never be able to make this movie, you know. But thankfully, I did my homework, and I found a lady named Julie Glaze Houlihan, who wound up being our music uh, supervisor. And uh, for any filmmakers out there, you know, look her up if you've got a tight budget. And we did a, a Favored Nations deal. And some of the songs that she cleared, I mean, there's some giants in there. And i got to thank Phil Axman and Bon Jovi because we were dying to put this Bon Jovi scene in the movie. And she was like, Bon Jovi's tight, man. He's probably not going to ever let you license his song. And Phil reached out to, to John Bon Jovi, and uh, he gave us our blessing. He gave us a song at a great rate, and it's in the movie, thank God, you know. Oh. So, uh, yeah, it was. I, I was just thrilled to death to, to know that he, you know, and the same thing with Pink. She had to authorize it as well. She had to look at the scene. And uh, I think the only person that really turned us down was John Cougar, and he's notorious for that. And, of course, Billy Joel uh, was kind of sour. Because, you know, a lot of people ask me, why isn't Billy Joel interviewed in the movie? Well, you know, and it's all archival from Billy. Right. In the film. But I wanted to be neutral. So I reached out to his people, and uh, oddly enough, he was interested. He's like, I'm interested. I would like to see the transcripts, and if you have any scenes cut. So I was like, okay, no problem. And I had no problem showing him. that There's some pretty rough material in there on him. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to him, and about three days later, I got the definitive no. Like, no. And I don't want that, and as, a, it, as a matter of fact, <laughs> take it out, you know. <laughs> it doesn't but, surprise uh, me. In all honesty, it does not surprise me. Well, that's, I don't that's, know anything the, about that's one of the curtains you know, that you, the people, uh, the, the, the viewer, get to look behind. People, you know, yes, interviews it, I got from the from the folks. No, you're right. You're right, Phil. Yeah, that is. It's pulling back the curtain that the view that you know the audience gets to see. It's something, you know, everybody has a public perception and of of performers, and this well, re- yeah, of course because we're we we're, until this movie, and it's it's. People have their ideas of, you know, whether it's income or, you know, how people get along and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like any relationship that goes sour. But there's a lot of people who walk out of this film, like you feel, okay, I laughed, mm-hmm. I cried, and mm-hmm. I got pissed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's and so that means I did my job. Right. That's that was my movie. whole thing going into making this movie is to make an emotionally charged piece of film that would move people. And the, you know, thing- the music, I always say, is kind of in the background. It's about the storytelling because I know when I go to the, like I just saw a movie last week. I go to the movies two or three times a week, literally. And uh, what was the movie? Uh, 
Megan says about the girl. Oh, Megan Levy. Has a do- Megan, Megan Levy. Levy. I was weeping in the yep. corner of a fetal position, boo-hooing for an hour and a half. Like, I love that, though. You know what I mean? Like, I want to feel the emotion, man. You know? Well, after you know, after you did Battlefield of the Mind, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, though. Right. Well, that touched me a different way. Uh, mm. You know, I, I hate war and everything to do with that. I'm from the huge liberal, you know, from the south, the, you know, moved to the Bay Area. And when I moved, first moved here, I was stunned by the amount of homelessness in the city. So I would strike up a conversation with these kids. I mean, these are 25, 26. You know, up to 35 years old, and the one common theme they had, they were all arriving back from these two wars and uh, were scarred, mm-hmm. you know, and they lost their relationships, their jobs, their families due to PTSD. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't need any trickery with, with uh, music scores or anything. I didn't bring the tears out. It's just these guys' stories and what they've gone through. It's just heart-wrenching. Well, and you, you, know? didn't, you didn't need any trickery with a hired gun because... As you both said, you know, you laugh, you cry, you get pissed, but you love every minute that you're watching this documentary. It's yeah, like you, you can't wait. Well, there, yeah, there's a couple of scenes in there, like when uh, Russell, I don't want to give too much of it away, but Russell Javers from Billy Joel's band talks about a very moving, uh, sad part yeah. of the industry. Uh which I think, I don't know, Phil, do you ever feel it when you come back off a giant tour like a Bon Jovi or anything like that? And I know you fly in jets now, but back in the days on tour bus, I remember coming home off, you know, 18 months on the road, and the, there's not the hum of the engine, the 16 semi-trucks, the crowd every night. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And you're waking that's, up that's, in, you know what? in a I feel quiet like if I'm be away, like having small children now. Where's my day sheet to tell me what to do today? You know, right? It's it's one of those, and it's and for me, it's like I'm I'm very thankful that when I decided to become a hired gun again and be in a situation like Bon Jovi, it's they don't disappear for a really long period of time. It would be like three weeks on and a week off is generally how they work, and it's not you know. And when people come, and you feel kind of fortunate in a situation where you know somebody comes up, hey, so what's the bus like? I'm like, bus. I haven't seen a bus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because we are. We're flying with the band, and we're flying from, from gig to gig. And you have a day off when, you know, the crew is still, you know, on a 12-hour bus ride. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's think about that situation where you're, you're at, at the height of any kind of, you know, rock and roll status, where, yeah, you've got to walk on and deliver a, an amazing set in front of 20,000 people every night or 50,000 mm-hmm. people or wherever you are. And, yeah, you you need to not be on a bus for 12 hours. <laughs> you, need to, you need to get your rest. You need to go to the gym. You need to, you know, it's whatever you need to do to make that happen, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, because we're almost out of time, but I want to ask both of you, what, my, my favorite set piece in the doc is the Just What the Doctor Ordered. I'm curious. Did you guys rehearse that at all? You know, because it it is perfectly it is perfectly shot from a film standpoint. The set looks amazing with little twinkle lights in the background. But watching each of each of you from Fish to you, Phil to Ava to Ed, 
to Liberty and Kenny, watching you perform with each one of you really getting to showcase your skills. Was that, did you do a lot of rehearsal for that? Or did you all just, you know, go at it and just hit it? I'm going to let Fran take that part. And then I have my okay. 30 seconds. Yeah. So, look, I got all these guys together after the AM show, like I said earlier. And we did one day of rehearsal the day before at, uh, I don't know, one of those backline places, or until you know, the third encore or something like that. And then we moved everything into East-West Studios, which was a huge thrill for me to, uh, to be able to film this and, and capture the audio there as well. But uh, and what was even funnier, I have to mention this. If I don't, I'll kill myself. There's a, an older lady, and her name is Corky Hale, and she's a pianist and harpist. And she's played with Liberace, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, even dated him for a while. And her husband was one of Elvis's songwriters, and he wrote Stand By Me, right? Mm-hmm. So it's incredible the history that this woman talks about. But And then there's Derek St. Holmes. And this lady is a huge liberal. Like, she builds and funds Planned Parenthood all over the country with her own money and, like, huge Bernie Sanders, something, the whole deal. Like, as far left as you can get and old and cranky. And then you have Derek St. Holmes. And because his name is attached to Ted Nugent, who's the polar opposite, right-wing hunter, you know, hate wants to kill Obama, the whole deal. And she's introducing herself, and people are introducing themselves to her in the green room. And she's like, well, who do you play for? And Derek sounds like, I sing for Ted Nugent. <laughs> I don't know, if Phil, if you were in there or not, but she burst a blood vessel. And she had Derek run out into the hallway like, fearing for his life. Okay. He went crazy on him. So that was one of the stand. I wish we would have had that on film. It was so hysterical. You had to be there. Oh, come but, on. Uh, you wouldn't have put that in there. <laughs> oh, my God. So, but you know what? See, my my, my experience with what, just what the doctor ordered was, um, I learned that song when I was 11. Like, literally. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Derek sounds like he did in the 70s. He sounds maybe, like, if so not good. better. So, and and the one thing that's magical about music is, is it makes you time travel, and that's what happened to me. I was playing just what the doctor ordered, and when Derek started singing, I was bang, in my dad's basement, dropping the needle on Double Live Gonzo, and I was 11. And and people were looking at me after, like, hey, you all right? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm 11. <laughs> it was just an incredible moment. Uh, guys... We are we are actually all out of time today. I I wish we could talk for another hour. You guys are amazing. I can't oh, I can't thank you. thank you enough for joining us today, Phil X, Fran Strine. This Thursday well, night. The, one, thank you. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say this Thursday night. Yeah, go ahead. Fathom Events. That's it. Three hundred theaters across the country. Get your tickets. This is a documentary. This is a one of my must sees for the entire year. Is hired gun. Amazing. Thank you. Oh, guys, thank you. Thank you. I hope that you guys will come back on the show again. Anytime. That would be great. All right. Have a great day, guys, and we will talk to you, you again. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.